This is CliffCentral.com. Nyam, 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 nyam. What was that? I'm a copper rush. I'm a copper rush. Yo, that's taking back. Eh? Before DJ's Fu went into the energy drink business. <laughs> <laughs> Before he became an entrepreneur, a Before leader, a marketing guru. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Before that, he was a guy called Mzegazek, the masked one. Yo. Mzegazek? Oh, yeah. Open secret, uh, my friend. I haven't, I haven't introduced Jeez. you to that part. I, the, you transition, really, it's, the transition it's continues. A, it's a slow <laughs> transformation. The transition continues. Welcome to the show. It is Frankly Speaking, Wednesday, 9 until 10 o'clock. Uh, my name is Andrew Levy and I'm here with Rory. Rory Sang Shabalala. Hello and welcome to the show. It is a very, very cool series that we're about to kick off here in the studio for the next uh, three to four weeks, depending on how much uh, stuff we can find on this on this topic. Uh, we will be playing the Zoomagate. It's series. really going. It's really going as long as as, as long, long as, as Zuma stays it, out of trouble. You know, as long as the Sunday Times can only uh, produce uh, things on them, you know. <laughs> so we start uh, the Zuma Gate series with Zuma, the hero. It is going to be an hour of finding out who Jacob Zuma is. Wow! Yeah. Can you imagine the good, the bad, and the unbelievable? The good, the bad, and the un- and you got to listen to this hour. It is crazy. Listen to where Jacob Zuma came from. I was super surprised myself. I've never dodged questions in this parliament. Your legacy can be summed up into three things. Mushiniwam, there is no case against me. Nkanda, I never took up a, a penny. Guptas, he made a serious error when he appointed Van Royen as a minister of finance to appease the Guptas and in doing so, wiped out almost 700 billion rand of wealth in South Africa. The president remained silent. We can tonight discuss the job of one man. There's no money that I'm going to be paying back. Or we can discuss the jobs of 8.3 million. Even if we are discussing very serious matters, a man stand up, point of order, yes? They do not get any living wage and they do not qualify for houses, cars, clothes, and education for their children. Nkanza. Tiggs was a church cook. We cannot respect a man personally responsible for the building of Nkanza and the firing of Nkanza. A broken president, a broken country. My babo. Wandam Sebens. Because if he was an honorable man, he would do the honorable thing and resign. Give us a mandate, Msholos, to handle your exit in a dignified manner. Further, and to avoid another embarrassing sitting president, scoring own goals. He has stolen from us. He has collapsed the economy of South Africa. He has made this country a joke. And after that, he has laughed at us. We cannot allow Zuma to do as he wish in this country. We are not going to allow that. We are doing doing what we are doing because we do not recognize him as our president. He is not our president. Zuma must fall. Zuma must fall. Zuma must fall. Zuma must fall. Zuma must fall.
So we remember this, right? Yeah. This is it's almost the current narrative. Yeah, right it's almost as if that's all there is to the man. Right? That is all. Well, that is all we that's know. All we that's know, all we know really know, about right? the guy. Yeah. So 0861555189 on Cliff Central. We are talking about Zuma the hero. Can you believe it? We are talking Zuma the hero. Is he a hero? Uh, you might you might think that he at least was a hero after you hear this show. Uh, we've got Jeremy Gordon. He wrote uh, the biography for Jacob Zuma. We'll also speak to uh, the resident for this series, Chris Vick. He's driving around in his expensive car somewhere in Johannesburg, so we'll be chatting to him a little bit later. But what are your thoughts? Hit us up on Twitter as well, at Rory Shabalala. Rory Sang Shabalala or Rory Shabalala? Rory Shabalala. Rory Shabalala and at Yebo underscore Levy. Uh, has Zuma ever been a hero in your mind? Uh, I know that's, you know, we're going to get tons of comments about how he's never, you know, he's a, just a bastard. He's just such a bastard and he stole the money. This guy's got a lot of layers to him and uh, we're going to be going through that. So check it out uh, with us for the next hour and we'd love to hear your thoughts. We're also available on WeChat. You can hit up cliffcentral.com. Okay, Rory, where does the story start? So, uh, did you know that Zuma was unable to get a formal education, but he made a plan anyway. So the the we, we constantly hear the story that Zuma... Uh, was, you know, is uneducated. I mean, even Gareth just now played uh, him struggling with the numbers. But the thing is, the reason why he could not get an education is because in the community where he was raised, there were no schools. Mm-hmm. And his mother was, was, was working as a domestic worker somewhere else. And what he did is he organized, uh, he used to try and get the, the books of the kids that could go to school to read. And so he was self-taught in that sense. And then at a certain stage, uh, him and a couple of friends uh, approached a lady in Gandler who had gone up to Standard 4 to teach him and his friends and they paid 25 cents to do this. Now this is very interesting. This is a guy who did not have the opportunity to go to school but he still made the effort. Now it's very easy to say yeah he's not educated and all of that but how many people do we know today, so never mind back then today, who've got the resources available to them, rich and poor but won't even make an effort to go and get themselves an education. So mm. this is the the one interesting thing for me is that this guy, uh, Zuma, was was a you know was uneducated. That's granted, but he actually did something about it. And I'd love to hear from Jeremy. Um, how does Zuma deal with this thing of being uneducated? Does he see himself as uneducated? Jeremy, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you? All right, thank you. Jeremy, we, we, we're discussing Zuma the good, the, the things that we probably don't hear enough about. But this man uh, was once a young man, and he went through, and we're going to go through different stages of his life. But uh, I just want to kick off with this issue of his education. How does he view himself? You wrote his biography and so on. In terms of this education, does he feel disadvantaged today? Um, and, and, and you know how, how does he hold his own in the company of other more educated people? Well, he, he knows perfectly well um, that he hasn't had a formal education. Um, and in fact, um, he's done amazing things, if you think about it, that he sort of kind of really left school um, at the end of primary school and never really got more than that. So um, he's well aware of it. He's spoken. Uh, he doesn't talk about it much anymore, but he's certainly spoken in his earlier days about the importance of education. And... Um, when he was on Robben Island, which is another point which we'll come to, I guess, in a few minutes' mm. time, he, um, he, he learned from people. Uh, I mean, there's a, a man called Ibi Ibrahim, mm. who until recently was the Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs, or do we call it now, International Cooperation. Mm. And he uh, told me 
uh, Ibi told me that he used to uh, uh, do reading exercises with Jacob Zuma on Robben Island. So he's well aware of it. He knows it's important, and uh, he works very hard at it. But um, so, I don't so, think he feels the necessity to hold Whenever we see him struggling with numbers and so on, how how do you think that plays out in his mind? Is is he a guy who, who who continues to see himself as as disadvantaged and so on? Has he continued to study even beyond that uh, ever since he came back and became president? Uh, or how does that? No, out? no, he hasn't continued. I don't think he continues to study, so to speak. But look, he has. Uh he has uh, problems with numbers, as you've seen on television and in Parliament, and has problems with, with English. Um, you know, his speech writers, and some of them haven't been so good at it, have to try and get his cadences, um, but uh, they don't always. So he reads with difficulty. Um, it's something he has to deal with and we have to deal with. But, uh, but, but I think it's fascinating, though, because it almost makes him relatable. The story that Zuma, Zuma was, a, was a child to, to, I think, the second wife of his father. Father died, they moved, and so on. Um, and then he was stuck and didn't have the means to get an education and, and then went about getting self-educated and so on. Is this, is this part of what makes him so relatable for the, for the ordinary person or the masses um, in this country? I think so. I think very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only was his uh, mother the second wife, but uh, the community in which she was when her husband, Zuma's father, died, kind of rejected her. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a fun youth, um, except that he loved being you know outdoors in Brazilian Natal. Uh, Jeremy, I think you know what's interesting for me reading reading up on on Jacob Zuma and through your biography uh, is his long relationship with the ANC. Maybe let's let's start at the beginning. How did Zuma get into the ANC? What was his drive in order to join the ANC um, in the in nineteen fifty nine? He he was uh, doing some odd jobs uh, in Durban. Um, and uh, he was very much drawn to the trade union movement. He worked at a pet store, if I remember correctly. At one point, yeah. He did. <laughs> um, and um, he he also had an uncle and some elders, as he would call them, who who told him about the struggles of African people and uh, of the horrors of colonialism. Interestingly, when you interview him now about that era, um, it's he talks more about colonialism um, rather than than white people. Um, you know, he he really does avoid being a racist in any way, and it's more. And he talks about you know the wars of the of the Zulu people against the British in in. And we're talking about the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So anyway, those are the kind of moving factors in his life, and he joined the the the, a, the ANC and then Jim? later the SACP. Jeremy, here we see, um, you know, he's been in the ANC for almost 60 years, but we see the beginnings of a really deep commitment to political education. What was the driver for that? So we see that um, right from the moment that he started, he began uh, participating in political education. Um, Even on Robben Island, he continued to be engaged in political education and even organized study groups. Um, what what has been this drive for him? He's just seemed to constantly been a person who has been willing to 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 be apprenticed in p- politics. Well, it, I mean, essentially, I suppose the one word answer is outrage. I mean, he's a young black man, and he looks around him and he sees what's being done 
to himself and to others. And it's just outrage. I mean, it's an outrage, you know, shared by millions of black people in this country before the 1990s. So 60 years, almost 60 years in the ANC. Andrew, that's uh, almost uh, my age and your age put together. You, mm. you just push us over a little bit. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> appreciate that. <laughs> but uh, so this, this 60 years, how has it shaped him? I mean, 60 years is a very long time. Is he the type of guy, <clears throat> excuse me, that if you were to cut him now, he'd just be bleeding uh, green, gold, and black? He, he just seems to be steeped. Um, in, in the ANC and his entire life was actually in the service of the ANC didn't really have a formal job apart from um, uh, his time in the pet store which was brief and then he also worked a bit for the SACP but his entire life has been dedicated to the ANC how close is the ANC to this man's heart? No, no, it's very much part of his heart I mean, it, it, it is as you've just said it's his life Um Things are getting a bit complicated now, but we're talking about them, and mm. uh, it's absolutely part of him. And uh, how does he feel then, uh, or how would you, you know, you, you having probably a better vantage point of him and his personality, how does he then feel when this organization that he has spent so much of his life sacrificing, um, how does he feel when he sees the things that are happening now, almost feel like um, he's being turned on? When you were writing the biography, did you get a sense of uh, uh, what, what his view on all of that was? Well, the biography was before what you're calling now turned on. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure that you're right, because the turning on, I think, uh, is not necessarily the core of the party. But but that's a whole other discussion. Mm. Um, certainly, when he ran into trouble with uh, Tabo and Becky and the Shabir Sheikh trial and so on um, in 2005, 2006 and so on, um, he never ever thought of it as the ANC uh, turning on him. He thought he thought the ANC, in fact, were backing him, and they were. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he never, he will never say a bad word about the ANC. And in fact, when I was interviewing him for for the book, um, the only times I, I, I saw him kind of get angry with me or lose it a bit, which he doesn't very easily at all. Uh, was if I criticize if I apparently criticized the ANC. We're speaking to Jeremy Gordon. He wrote the biography for Jacob Zuma. We're talking uh, in the first in our series, uh, Zuma Gate, the series, and Zuma the Hero, uh, finding out exactly his past um, and uh, whether he was a hero back then. It seems like he was. Uh, Jeremy, you spoke about Ibi Ibrahim uh, a little earlier. Um, interesting time period around the 60s, in 1963 specifically, when... Um, the, you know, Zuma was moving around the country quite a bit. He was, he was on a, a train called the Freedom Train to Zambia to, to join, uh, I suppose, the MK movement, uh, across our borders and actually was caught, um, by the, the security police, uh, and organized an arrest, which then obviously in those days meant that you could have a 90 day detention without any kind of trial. And he was based in solitary confinement. I mean, how does this affect a young man? Zuma, this is Zuma at age 21 being caught uh, on this train, 1963. Uh, like, is this, what, what, what characteristics now are we seeing from this time period, do you think? Well, what, I'm sorry, 
sorry, what kind of? What characteristics or frame oh. of mind that we see now it's in today's Zuma came from back then when, when he's arrested in 1963, spends 90 right. days in detention and then further 10 years uh, on Robben Island? Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, we don't need to quibble, but I'm not sure if there was any train involved. Um, I don't think he got 90 days either. He was arrested in Zerust. Mm. with a bunch of guys who were going uh, across the border to get training. Uh, ulti- the ultimate goal was Russia. And um, they were they were caught by the security police. Apparently someone gave them away, so Zuma says. And um, they were sort of pushed around and beaten up by the security police, which happened a lot then. And then they were tried. I don't think there was a 90-day period um, uh, anyway, he got 10 years and was sent to Robben Island. Yeah. Um, so, I'm not even sure the 90-day uh, legislation was in force then. But yeah, as from, I say, from, from, from our sources, he was held in solitary confinement for 90 yes. days, um, uh, and then the trial was held at the Pretoria Old Synagogue, where Fr- yeah. Judge Fritz Stein uh, was presiding. Mm. I, I think I want to, so you, you spent time with the man. Um, mm. what, what do you think at 21, you know, you, 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 you're arrested, uh, you, you basically put into the solitary confinement. Um, the vehicle gets, stops overnight in Colesburg and collects other prisoners. That's where you meet Ibrahim Ibi. Yeah. Um, and, and you're just sitting there. Handcuffed, you know, handcuffed and placed in leg irons for the entire journey um, in this windowless van with only a sanitary bucket. What happens in a man at 21 when that goes through? Are you seeing? Do you, if you had to analyze the man that you interacted with, what what do you think the impact of that moment was on him right now? Well, I think the impact was the. It must have been a really frightening impact, but. And, uh, and, and really scary. But on the other hand, uh, he's a tough guy. And, uh, he was young and, and together then. And, um, so on the one hand, there'd be the, the horror and the appallingness of the whole experience. But on the other, this was the beginning of 10 years where he met all these other people on the island, um, who were amazing, um, and were coordinated. And all had the same views, and they argued openly about their views, and they educated one another. So I guess it was a mixed experience. What but, was his demeanor when he was describing that period of his life? Um, I'm, I'm talking about the, the time when he got arrested. Surprisingly, surprisingly unbitter. Mm. Um, that always, uh, during these interviews, uh, struck me, that given some of his experiences, just how... Unbitter, he appeared. And why do you think that is? Why Why do you think he was unbitter? Uh, I just think, um, you know, he's a he's a rural guy. He was brought up in a hard scrabble environment. Um, I guess, in many ways, you'd say that he's just surprisingly unneurotic. Um, and uh, he'd come through these experiences. He's very self confident, notwithstanding for example, being uneducated, very self-confident, and uh, he's he's just clear about he, what he wanted to do in his life and what he ended up doing. He seems like, you know, as, as he's grown older and, and the critics have now come on board, he seems that he's getting a little bit uh, hot under the collar. Would you agree with that? I mean, it, it seems like the, the more people attack him, the more he's starting to get bitter because people are starting to forget about this time and how much how much commitment he's given to uh, to the ANC. 
I, I, I haven't sort of seen him, I mean, this is in recent years now, being bitter. I think he, he can get sarcastic uh, if he thinks things are being silly, such as his reaction in Parliament about Nkandla when he started uh, mocking other people's accents and so on. But uh, I don't know about bitter. He doesn't seem like a, a bitter person to me at all. I mean, if you probe very hard, there's certain things that you can see. Um, he's holding inside and he's very, very angry about. That one an example of that would be what happened ultimately with uh, former President Thabo and Becky and their split and division. That That he's angry about. But bitter is not a thing of his. I don't think so. During uh, his time at Robben Island, 10 years on the island, he never received one visitor. He wrote Correct. He wrote to his mother and said, keep the money that you would spend and use it on, on brothers and sisters, on his brothers and sisters. Do you think that that impacted him? That, that yes, he had this community in Robben Island and political prisoners, but no one from home. Um, and that, 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 I suppose, isolated him slightly. Do you think that's why it's so, it's so easy for him to, I suppose, throw people under the bus because, you know, there's only Zuma to worry about and he, he's learned how to be a self-contained unit? Uh, that's an interesting point. Uh, it, it could be that. Uh, certainly he never got any visitors, which must have been tough. I mean, he was, as you say, only 21, 22. Um, but yeah, he's a tough guy. Underneath, underneath the chuckle, and he's also a tough guy. Jeremy, we also get a picture of a selfless guy. Um, you know, saying, you know, keep the money for my brothers and sisters. I'm in jail for ten years, um, and in all those ten years, uh, you know, he recognizes the, the the need of his family, and he puts his family ahead of himself. Um, is he is he a selfless guy indeed, and uh, is this probably the other thing that keeps him uh, afloat? Well, that's a problematic question. Um, I don't necessarily think he's selfless in the sense uh, that you and I might mean it, because um, I mean the issue comes up if he were selfless. Um, why isn't he, for example? putting the country before himself at the moment. But mm. that's jumping forward. Mm. I, I don't think the word selfless. I, I think the word is... Um, it's not selfless. It's, it's, uh, he's, one thing he certainly is, uh, is he's very family-oriented. I mean, for him, himself, and the Zuma family, and anybody connected with it comes first. Um, so that could be why he responded, you know, to, to wrote to his mother that way. Um, and and even now, I mean, I'm talking about 10, 15 years ago, um, all his children, um, so-called illegitimate children, um, they, are, they, they were brought to his home, they were brought up as his children. There's never been an issue about that. I mean, if you're a Zuma, as far as he's concerned, you're it. I'm interested, uh, you, you brought up Tabo Mbeki and, and the, the names that we see throughout his past are, are hugely influential now uh, in the current political scheme, but not maybe in the way one thinks. Tabo Mbeki and, and Zuma were, were close allies. I know that uh, Tabo apparently taught uh, Zuma how to shoot a gun. They were, they were stalwarts uh, across the borders. Just give us a little sense of the Tabo Mbeki-Zuma relationship at the very beginning. Well, Zuma had, uh, Tabo was in charge 
of uh, of the ANC sort of channel of operations in Swaziland. We're talking about 1974, 75. Um, and Zuma went across to see him. And uh, Mbeki had received information that the security police had just before Zuma crossed the border. This is now, he's now out of Robben Island, right? And he's reorganizing, helping reorganize the ANC in, in KwaZulu-Natal, uh, or Natal as it was then. And uh, uh, there's been security police raids, and Mbeki says to him, don't go back, because you're going to get picked up. Stay here. And in fact, so he stayed then in Mozambique, and he, Mbeki was the guy he worked with. We're talking, so he didn't come back for, what, 20, more than 20 years to South Africa. Um, Zuma didn't. And um, and they worked as a team. Um, Zuma was responsible for for dealing with all the students who then who were then fleeing across the border in the wake of Soweto, and uh, they were they were really close. I mean, they were peaches and cream. It, it's it's quite fascinating if you look at the relationship between Becky and Zuma, and <clears throat> can understand what you were saying that they were. He must have been angry because um, they had this relationship both in South Africa in exile, worked together even right until. Um, the negotiations with the then apartheid government. Um, so, so how did that whole thing and it's playing out? How did that affect him emotionally? You, you mentioned an anger. Can you give us a little bit of a deeper insight into his reactions and how he's how he's at least communicating about it? Well, he he he, he kept it. I mean, at least at the time of the writing of this book, it was pretty much bottled up, but. Uh, but the fact is that he had been deputy president, and he felt that Mbeki dumped him um, when the when the Sheikh uh, trial came up and the results of the Sheikh trial, and uh, he felt and he 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 had to leave the deputy presidency. I mean, he was basically fired, hmm. um, and he was extremely upset and angry about that. With the result, as you saw, that some years later Mbeki was recalled. Mm. Um, after Polokwane conference, he was recalled by the ANC, as they called it, because Zuma was now in power in the ANC and was moving things his way. Do you think that uh, he had, uh, if you look at Zuma's credentials, uh, particularly in the ANC, um, it's almost like there's no one else who's earned the political credentials that he has. He, he comes from both the local ANC structures and spent some time in the trade unionist movement. He served time on Robben Island. He went into exile. He served in the MK. He even worked for the SACP. So he's been around. He's 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 earned his stripes in a lot of ways. Did, did, did you get a sense that he felt entitled to... Uh, to to eventually lead the ANC? Oh, he, he definitely felt entitled to lead the ANC. In fact, I mean, one of the things I write about in the book is that, in a way, he's kind of... Um, I mean, when there was a lot of criticism toward him, and every, I'm talking about some years ago, I'm talking about eight, nine years ago, he was kind of a bit mystified. I mean, <laughs> his view was, hey, I'm the man. Well, there's not even a question here. Mm. He definitely felt entitled. I'm interested to to understand, you know, because I think this is this is where, for me, Zuma the hero really starts to to appear is around uh, the the late 1980s, early 1990s. We we see the the Khrutuskia minute and his involvement in that, and and I suppose Road to Freedom is is has Zuma's name all over it. Give us a sense of how Zuma. 
seized that time uh, in his life in the, around the 1990s as as the minutes the Khrushchev minutes agreed upon and I suppose Kodesa started to be outlined the political prisoners are released um, political parties are now not um, illegal what is Zuma going through at that stage well he's one of the first people to come back he comes back here in 1990 um, under under the radar so to speak although he's cooperating with the um, with the security police and and with the then government, because he's meeting with them to set all this up. In fact, he tells the story of being picked up at the airport or, or wherever it was he flew to, or maybe maybe in Vatikov, um, uh, by a, by a, a high-ranking security policeman. Uh, I'm, I'm in the general, uh, a white general, obviously. Then, and they heard a thing on the radio that uh, <laughs> a certain a certain Jacob Zuma, you know, needed to be arrested, and that uh, and that he was wanted. He was on the wanted list, which is quite a funny story <laughs> to think about it as he was yeah, driving through yeah, Pretoria. Yeah, um, so he, again, in man. this car. <laughs> yeah, in this car. I mean, he and uh, he and, and Becky were very much, as you know, at the forefront of of everything that happened then. Um, and uh, you know, he was playing a kingpin role. Mm. I mean, he was very much, as I said, the yin to Mbeki's yang and vice versa. I mean, he was, that's why things got so bitter at, yeah. uh, just before Polokwane. And in this yin and yang, enter Ramaphosa. Uh, well, Ramaphosa was here. Mm. Um, but was, he, he betrayed them in a way, didn't he? Because he was, uh, uh, at, at some stage when uh, Mbeki and Zuma were abroad, Cyril, then uh, Secretary General of the ANC, convened the ANC National Working Committee and uh, sidelined Mbeki and Zuma. So Zuma lost his position as head of intelligence and Ramaphosa replaced Mbeki as head of the ANC's negotiation with government. Is, is that how he sees uh, what happened there? I think I think he was aware of it, but I mean I think that was set right later, wasn't it? But uh, but certainly Ramaphosa came to the fore, and uh, it's no secret uh, that uh, Nelson Mandela quite favoured Ramaphosa in many ways, um, which of course was a source of bitterness to Thabo Mbeki. But um, but yeah, but certainly, but Ramaphosa, I mean once once. The, the party had had said that uh, that Ramaphosa couldn't be deputy president to Nelson Mandela, which is what allegedly what Mandela wanted, um, and Thabo Mbeki would be. Um, I think that kind of evened out, if you know what I mean. The the unrest in KwaZulu Natal was a huge uh, bone of contention around. Uh, the early 90s, of course, the the allegations, and I suppose now are proven about the third force helping out the IFP of the time. Um, Zuma came to the rescue in a big, big way there. He he was instrumental, wasn't he, in creating peace around that region? Absolutely. He was uh, one of the major players. Um, he he the, the interesting thing about Zuma, I think, is that um, always, notwithstanding his membership of the SACP and the ANC, He's, he's in many ways, as you know, kind of a down the straight middle um, Zulu traditionalist. Mm. So he, he really didn't he didn't really like the the way things had played out then in KwaZulu Natal with the IFP and with 
Prince Mangasutu Butelezi and his followers being set, being cut off from the ANC. He really felt there was a way that peace could be achieved and this violence could stop. And uh, and he was right, and they got there. And he played a big role in that. I mean, I, I, you know what's interesting, Rory, to me and, and Jeremy, is throughout this, this, and we've given a very brief summation of, of Zuma's history. Of course, there's much more to it. One of the interesting things for me is how he's always involved in information. Um, of course, he was he was very involved in the intelligence um, of the NK, and he he also you know had his his uh, ear to the ground with with uh, the former apartheid security cluster. Dirk Utsia was involved at Flakplas. He just had information at his fingertips all the time, and I suppose this is why he's so powerful these days. He's got information on everyone. Uh, that's uh, absolutely possible, and it's true. He was very involved in information. I mean. That was his metier, as they say. Um, Jeremy, does he have information on you? You, you, you seem to be very cagey at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think so. If, if he does it, stuff I don't know about. <laughs> Jeremy, the other interesting thing about Zuma is just uh, his relationship. So, so he's been at, in strategic positions where he has been the one sending off. Uh, people, MK, vet, MK, MK soldiers into exile. He was also part of setting up uh, uh, the systems through which uh, they returned back uh, post-apartheid. Um, he has he has been in the MK and so on. He seems to be a person who uh, most of the influential people at least went through his hands at one point or another or put their lives in his hands. Is that another reason why he is... Uh, he, he seems to be so influential, and and from the outside we can't see it, but it's actually those deep relationships that go way, way back, where people tr- entrusted their lives to him. Yeah, there, there are many of those. They're not perhaps as many um, as you seem to be implying, but certainly there are some, and there have been some uh, deep relationships. Um, but a lot of those people, of course, uh, are not... Uh, operational in the party anymore um not these days because they've all i mean you mustn't forget that uh, zoom is 74 he's just had his birthday huh? 12th of april um and uh he's he's not a youngster either but so but anyway the point is that yeah there were deep relationships but uh, i mean some of the some of those people are left, but not everybody. Jeremy, you spent a lot of time with him, obviously building this book. Um, you got an intimate look into the man that that we see as the president. Just give me your 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 personal thoughts on the man. Is is he a misunderstood man? Is he? Do you think he's getting the bad end of a deal here? Um, give us give us some insight from you personally. Um, I think. There used to be many things um, that were misunderstood about him. And I think for a long time, and even now, the kind of things that you, you being you plural, have chosen to start off this series of programs with um, is a very intelligent choice because there, there is all this stuff from the early years that people forget. And those are achievements. Um, but on the other hand, I think that uh, there are personality traits which are going to come out in your next series of programs over the next few days or whenever you're holding it, um, which uh, have worked against him. Um, 
I mean, they sort of raised their head when you asked whether he was selfless. Mm. Uh, I don't think he's selfless. I think Zuma and the Zuma family are number one. And that hasn't, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, and that hasn't worked <laughs> out so well in recent years for various reasons, which I presume you guys are going to get into. Yeah. Jeremy, as we close off with you, in your final analysis, having met the guy and so on, and, and looking at who he is, would you summarize that Zuma is a good guy? Um, that's a very difficult question. I mean, I wouldn't actually think of anybody as a, as a good guy. Mm. Uh, he's a mixture, like most of us. Mm. Um, is, he, is, he, is he more salty than sweet or more sweet than salty? No, look, he's very charming. Um, he's got something very nice about him. He's a very warm man, which is what a lot of people who put him into power at Polokwane had experienced. He's salt of the earth, if you like, <laughs> but uh, but he's uh, he's a bit like the rest of us. All right, Jeremy Gordon, thank you so much. We're going to let you go there. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today. That's Jeremy Gordon. He wrote the biography for uh, Zuma, and uh, we've been speaking to him over the last uh, 40 minutes about Zuma, the hero. He is certainly not just a one-sided character, Rory. I think there's a lot to him. Uh, we're going to bring along Chris Vick into this, into this conversation. We spoke to him last week. He was very, very interested in... Uh, in all this uh, Zuma stuff that we're going on about here, Zumagate the series, we're starting with the hero. Chris? Chris, can you hear me? All right, we'll get to Chris Vick now. I'm g- interested to hear what he has to say. Obviously, he's he was intimately involved in the ANC in the early 90s, so he'll know a lot about that period of Codessa, um, the, the violence in the KwaZulu-Natal area. Do you feel sorry for him, Rory? Yeah, you know, so when when you come to understand and hear the background of a man, you start to realize, and you know, let's face it, a lot of us are bitter. Um, Maybe you didn't speak to me the right way, excuse me, Um, or you didn't, um, or, you know, something happened in our recent past and and are bitter, we don't speak to people anymore. Here's Mm. a guy who joined ANC in his teens and gave his life up for it. And the things he's had to go through and the things he's had to endure and to still be, you know, for, is it worth <clears throat> 250 million rand? I mean, look, for me, <laughs> I don't know if I would be as level headed when, when, if you look at his life and what it's been like, uh, I'm, I'm like, yeah, we're dealing with, uh, we're dealing with little things here. He took 200 million. I'm not saying it's right, but it's uh, this, this guy could be off his rocker. Chris, uh, you're, you're the anchor for the series here. Good morning to you. Welcome. You've, you've just heard Jeremy Gordon. You've got your personal thoughts about him. Um, tell us a little bit about, if you can, if you can. He can. Is there any hero characteristics of President Jacob Zuma? Good, well, good morning to you first and to your listener. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, for that listenership. Good morning. We really appreciate that, that you're so polite. <laughs> I, I mean, I think the way the way that Jeremy sums up um, Jacob Zuma's life story is is quite accurate. And the way, and what is your summary just now, you know, I mean, I think to have been, to have made the sort of contribution that, that, that Jacob Zuma made during, during the struggle, during the underground war, um, I, on his return to South Africa in Cordessa, the work he did um, knitting together some very violent groups of people in KZN. I mean, those are amazing 
stories and amazing contributions, and I think we have to acknowledge that. The difficulty is that I think that, that in the same way that many other ANC leaders have gone through their own transformation since moving into office, you know, those that's what he's going to be judged upon, um, is is the things that he's done and not done as, president, as, as, as third or fourth president of the republic. And, and that's unfortunate because I think, in, you know, as is the case of many other ANC leaders, you, you're kind of uh, defacing a very proud history with a very embarrassing, very problematic present, which is going to create real problems in the future. Chris, uh, everybody has said uh, that uh, he, <clears throat> well, not everybody, but there's been the sense that he's a liability, which he has denied to say he's not a liability to the ANC. But you see that he gave his life for the ANC, so it almost doesn't make sense that a guy who's given his life for this organization could just, uh, you know, be such a liability. What do you think is going on in his mind um, and how he reconciles his behavior and what is in the best interests of the party? Well, I, th- I think it's symptomatic of what's happened to liberation movements, uh, certainly in Southern Africa, but also in the rest of Africa, is we, we're we very good at waging a struggle against an unjust system, whether it's colonialism or apartheid or apartheid colonialism, which is what we've gone through. Um, and people's minds and reference points and moral compasses change when they come into power. And the longer they stay in power, the more there seems to be a tendency to to be to, to kind of lose the essence of what made that struggle in the first place. And 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 power does change the way that people think and approach life, you know, and I and I, and I think it's 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 not it's maybe a sad inevitability that if people if people are not that in tune or lose touch to some extent with what is going on around them. And you live in this cocoon of blue lights, helicopters, red carpets, banquets, mm-hmm. uh, blesses, and, and things like that. It does are we still speaking about Zuma or are we speaking about your life at the moment, Chris? Talking about the president. <laughs> I'm but interested. I mean, if you, if, you, if you think about it, I mean, that, that, that sensation, even if, if, if the Nelson Mandela Stadium was, was half empty, that sensation of walking into a stadium with forty to 50,000 people in, and they, most of them are chanting your name, and most of them are kind of worshipping the ground you, you walk on. That does change your perspective after time, you know? And the difficulty is keeping your feet on the ground and keeping your head pointed in the right direction. I'm interested to hear from you personally. Was there ever a time that you thought uh, President Zuma was a hero? I'm talking well, back in the day, obviously before all of this, the shenanigans going on. But I mean, you know, 1990s, you're heavily involved in the ANC. He's a prominent ANC leader. Was there ever a moment where you're like, this guy, he's, he's cool? I, well, I mean, up until, you know, in, in 2007, before Polokwane, we, we, we ran a thing called The Third Way, which was a, a sort of motley group of people who were unhappy with Mbeki and unhappy with Zuma. And we were campaigning to some extent for Tokyo as a third option. That's why it was called the third way. And we realized about two months before Paul Kwani that we were on a hiding to nothing. We were having a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, we were, we were kind of... We Back the wrong horse there, huh? <laughs> no, no, no. Well, it wasn't about right horses. It was about keeping the two wrong horses out. And, and, and I think that that's really why it was called the third way. So, So what happened was we collapsed our structures to the extent that they existed and we threw in our lot 
with the Zuma campaign. So we, I, I went to Tokyo on a couple of trips um, in the Eastern Cape, for example. And I was really, I mean, I was amazed at the level of support. Um, I was really impressed with the way victimhood was turned into an effective uh, organizing tool. And I mean, that, that's the Jacob Zuma. He was able to knit together a, a, a coalition of the wounded. That's what we called it. There were so many victims of the Ndeki administration that you haven't had a big enough coalition of the wounded to, to outnumber him at Polokwane itself. He, I mean, Zuma was really impressive in terms of the way that he was able to connect with crowds, listen to people. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a kind of really a, a sort of rural humility in terms of the way that he interacts with ordinary people. And, and, and for me, that was the kind of hero moment. And it, and it was really cool at Polokwane itself to see the way in which the support for, for, for Zuma had grown. Because it wasn't just support for him, it was a very real opposition to the way Mbeki had run the ANC and the way he was running the state at the time. So, and we all, thought, we all thought it was a kind of resurgence back to the core issues that the ANC should be concerned with. It was seen as populist. Mbeki's um, people used to talk about how the peasants were going to take over these union buildings and cause havoc. But, I mean, it really was about a return to those ANC values of social justice, dealing with poverty and unemployment, etc. So what broke in the men? I don't think I don't think anything broke. As I say, I think there's been an erosion of um, of perspective in terms of what's important, I, and I think that's been generous. I think I think if I was to be a bit less generous, I think he's been incredibly clever in managing um, up until about a year ago in managing the party, in managing government, and in managing power. I often think of him as the sort of Putin of South African politics. Um, in that he really is able to to analyze and understand, because he has so much access to so much intelligence, and I'm putting that in quotes, it's kind of information more than anything. He's able to read where the power bases are. He's able to persuade and win people to deal with with opposition to him. You know, I mean, he's been incredibly successful in, in, in managing power. And I think that... Possibly that went too far. You know, I don't, I don't think there's a defining moment when we can say Zuma lost the plot. I think there's been a real erosion since the Shabir Sheikh era um, of of kind of moral issues and, and issues of integrity, issues of governance. That seems to have got lost lost amid all the power mongering and power brokering that's been going on to build his support base, to keep him in power, and to build these incredibly elaborate layers of patronage. There's, there's a long list of people that, uh, that Zuma worked with uh, during his uh, rise in the ANC. How many of those people now who, who would have said that he's he was a hero, the likes of, uh, I suppose we know Talmbeki, what his thoughts are, but the likes of Matthew Sposa, um, how many of those people are now going, you know, he was a hero, but actually now that guy needs to go? Well, I think as, as Zuma's approach has changed, so perspectives have changed. I don't think it's, it's unrelated. You know, I don't know that people suddenly decided he's a bad person. But, the, you know, the succession of problems from shake, rape trials, and Kandla, the spy tapes, you name it. I mean, there's just there's sort of challenge after crisis after challenge after crisis. And, and, and the way he's dealt with those issues has shaped the way that people perceive him. And I think what you're seeing at the moment is an increasing level of people just being a because they realize 
the damage that it's that it's causing to the ANC, to government, to society, to our international image, to the markets, etc. It's just become too much to bear. So even some of the most loyal are starting to talk about ways of getting him out or getting him to step out. You know, whether he resigns, retires, ill health gets pushed, there are a lot of options on the table, obviously. But it's how you get that to happen and how what the timing is that people are starting to talk about now. Chris, uh, I'm just interested in going back a bit. Um, you know, when you look at this guy's life, right? He joined the ANC as a teenager. He's been in the ANC for almost 60 years, gave most of that life up, um, suffering, going to prison and being in exile and so on. Uh, was there anything done, um, when, when all these people sort of returned back into the fold and so on? Some like post-traumatic, uh, stress counseling or anything? Because, oh, they all had therapy. This, yeah, they all had therapy. Yeah, because this is, this is, couches. because, uh, this is, this might just be the, just the results of a, a person who's, who's gotten to breaking point and, you know, it's just gotten to a point where he can't be, be, be saved. Was there any sort of intervention like that? No, there wasn't. Um, and I think it applies whether you were in jail, whether you were on the run, whether you were living in exile, whether you were stuck in Uganda waiting to come back and fight. I mean, I think everybody, we were, we were, we were mobilized. Um, but there was no demobilization. I think that's a huge part of the problem. I mean, people I know who are on Robben Island are tremendously damaged by by that experience. You know, being locked up in a cell for 18 years really, really damages you. Hmm. And I think that for a lot of people, particularly those who were, who were I mean, living in Swaziland when, when Jacob Zuma was back, it was hell. You know, you never knew when the birds were going to come across the border and take you out. Um, there were hit squads and there were all sorts of things going on. So it was a very, very difficult time for everybody. And and I think what, what happened was that people got into um you know, certain certain behaviors like secrecy was the norm. You couldn't trust anybody. And if you did find people you could trust, you trusted them completely. Mm. So that all affects your psychology and I think it affects your outlook on life. It affects the way that you treat the people around you. And and so the short answer to your question is no. And I think it's a very real problem that we're having to deal with now is a sort of post-war psychosis um, compounded by machismo, you know? I mean, real men don't need to be demobbed. And real men just sort of switch off, switch on. That's part of the problem. It's kind of not seen as uh, something that people should be talking about or doing something about. So we carry on walking with these scars on our backs and in our brains and all over the place. And we act in weird ways. Chris, as we wrap up uh, the, the first episode of a series of four on the Zuma, the good, the bad, the surprising. I thought you were doing three. How did you grow to four? No, we just decided we need to do the journalists as well. We need to bring journalists in here and, and, and hold them to account about Zuma. So we're, we're adding another one. Well, we can do whatever we like. That's what's cool about this thing. <laughs> um, Chris, a moment in time where you thought Zuma was a hero. No, Rory asked me that already. Can I have another question? <laughs> no, 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 no. You didn't answer it. Did. did you? What, what was your moment? Tell me. What was in, your moment? In, in 2007, when we collapsed the third way and we started campaigning with him, I really thought he was the future because, as uh, I said a few minutes right. ago, 
Okay, so you want to ask another question? <laughs> I wasn't listening to you, Chris. Chris. I'm sorry about that, man. That's the problem. Just like, off, too busy off my game today. Yeah. Off my game Chris, today. Chris, I just want to find out uh, <laughs> what would the Chris if Hardy there's business? A particular, if there's a particular moment when I would check if we were here, yeah, yeah. Just to ask you a, a new question. <laughs> oh, shut Chris, up. Uh, as we as we as we wrap up, um, there's this interesting picture of uh, Zuma and Chris Hardy having a conversation. Mm. Um, uh, and you know, just uh, almost what it would be like to be a fly on the wall in that conversation. What do you think, Chris Hardy, uh, would have thought of the man that is Zuma today? Uh, you know, we can speculate about that. We can speculate what Steve Biko would have thought. We can speculate about what anybody would have thought. I, th- I think what matters is what we think, and because we we can do something about it. Dead people, dead soldiers can't do anything about it. I I think that across the ANC, particularly among the people who really suffered, whether in exile or underground or in, in jail, there's a real sense of disappointment at where we've ended up. There's a sense of disconnect from from people who matter, the poor, the unemployed, people living in shitty houses. There's a real disconnect from their issues. There's the pretense. There's a, there's a, there's a sort of a semblance of work being done in those areas, but the reality is that the leadership is focused on survival, not focused on growth. They're not focused on sustainability. It's a sort of holding operation, and I think that disappoints a huge number of people. People are starting to speak out and find their voices. There are still huge numbers of people who seem happy within the ANC with the way things are going, but increasingly the number of people who are unhappy is growing, and they're starting to coalesce, and they're starting to talk about what to be, what is to be done about the situation that we're in now. Jeez, and you thought my re-questioning was a bad one. I mean, Rory asked you about what ghosts think about Zuma right now. I mean, honestly, <laughs> Chris, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. We will join, we'll be joined by you again, uh, as we huh? hit episode two of Zuma, really? the villain. Yeah, you've got a lot to say on this one. So we'll get you in this as well. And, uh, we've got a, a few, uh, few ex-ministers who will be getting involved as well. So stay tuned for that. Chris Vick, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Uh, Rory, quickly wrap up here. Zuma the hero. There's a lot of interesting things. What was the most interesting thing going back into his past that, that hit you? I think uh, for me, it's a, it's a summation of this guy. And, and, and he's been through a lot. This guy has, has not had a held down a formal job uh, his whole life. He was just a member of the ANC and a soldier and so on. This guy really sacrificed for where we are right now. And we need to acknowledge that this is an one side to him. I think uh, the interesting thing for me was I forgot that he went to prison for 10 years. Mm. And you will always be judged by your last act. Mm. In spite of almost close to 60 years, it's the what you've done in the past three years that defines your legacy. I think it's sad. Well, that's how we're going to end it t- today on Cliff Central. Frankly speaking, remember, it is a series of Zuma. Let us know your questions as we go through the hero, the villain, and the surprising uh, with Zumagate here on Frankly Speaking. You can also catch up with the podcast, www.cliffcentral.com. Have yourself a lovely day. We will see you in two weeks as we are on holiday next week. Aren't you excited? But the show goes on. The show does go on. The show goes on with the next, with the next, with the next episode. Have yourself a great day. Ciao, ciao. This is cliffcentral.com.